Welcome, everybody, to the flagship episode of the A Warrior's Garden podcast. I am Malachi Gaskin, author of the book A Warrior's Garden, A Warrior's Garden, the workbook, co-author of Trademarker for Combat-Related PTSD, and author of A Warrior's Garden, the Chinese Way. I'm currently writing a new book called Beyond the Garden, um, but today what we're going to do is I'm going to give you a little bit of my bio. We're going to talk about what A Warrior's Garden is all about. We're going to talk about what A Warrior's Garden has become, and we're going to talk about where this podcast about A Warrior's Garden is going and the purposes of what we're doing and why we're doing it. First of all, I want to say thank you to our title sponsor, um, Scars and Stripe Coffee. Uh, Thank you so much for all you're doing for our veterans, Um, and eventually we will have uh, Chad Watts, the founder of Scars and Stripes Coffee, on one of the episodes. But here we go. Again, my name is Malachi Gaskin. I was born and raised in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, I was born to Ralph Gaskin and Judith Gaskin. Um, Born June 6, 1974. Um, My dad was an Army veteran. His father was an Army veteran. You know, their fathers, 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 fathers were Army veterans all the way back to the Revolutionary War here in America. Pretty much from what my understanding about my family line is that every male in my family, every a male a male in every generation of my family has served in the military. Um, so at 18 years old, I dropped out of high school and got my GED. I was going to a small Christian school uh, in Fort Wayne called Fort Wayne Christian, which now I believe it's Keystone Christian School or Christian Academy, something like that. Um, but I was going to school there in the 12 years that I was in school, I had attended 13 different schools, um, cause we moved a lot in my hometown, um, which was very, it's a pretty large city. Fort Wayne's not that small. It's the second largest city in the state of Indiana. Um, and so I did, uh, at, you know, my end of my junior year of high school, I looked at my teacher and I was like, you know, Hey, um, can you humor me for a second and just tell me how much you make a year? And she, she looked at me and she's like, you know, that's highly inappropriate. And I was like, no, I get it. I understand. But I just humor me. Okay. Just humor me. And so she looked at me and she said, I make about 25 a year. And I looked at her and I'm like, I'm 18 years old today. Today's my 18th birthday. And I'm already making more than you. And I just kind of got up and I was like, I'm done. And I walked out, um, got in my car and went to a pay phone because that was a thing back then. And uh, I called my dad and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to drop out of high school. And he was like, well, what do you, what's your plan? And uh, I was like, well, I think I'm just going to go ahead and go to work full time because we had a family landscape business. We were one of the largest in the area. And I did. I went to work full time. A year later, I got my GED, joined the Indiana Army National Guard. And I came in as what then was known as a 91 Bravo, now is known as a 68 Whiskey. And it's kind of transitioned. It went from 91, originally it was a 91 Alpha, and then they split Alpha into 91 Alpha and 91 Bravo. And then 91 Bravo became a 91 Whiskey. And then 91 Whiskey became a 68 Whiskey, which is today's modern combat medic. And so I was a combat medic for two years in the Indiana Army National Guard. I was assigned to Charlie Company, first of the 293rd Infantry. After about two years... I transitioned over to being infantry just because it's, let's be honest, it's a lot of fun to blow stuff up and shoot things and kick indoors and do all that, you know, especially when you're a young guy. I spent six years in the infantry, was made promoted to staff sergeant, was a squad leader for second squad, first platoon. Some NCOs, senior NCOs and officers from a unit out of Indianapolis came to me 
after one of our annual training periods and said, hey, we'd really like for you to come down, work in our unit. We uh, we noticed that in the state, you just came out on the E7 list for medical at number one for the state. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I was like, well, I'm interested. Let's, let's talk about what that would take for me to do that. And I took over a position as a platoon sergeant in Charlie Company 113th Med Support Battalion out of Indianapolis. And uh, I served for a year. Things went south really quick at the end of that year. My first sergeant and I got into a fight and I turned in my equipment and I ETSed instead of re-enlisting. Then I spent the next three years. I got out. I decided to try my hand at music again because off and on I'd been in you know punk rock bands and rock bands all from high school on. So this is about 2003. And so I decided to try my hand at making music again. And I put together a band with some really good friends of mine that I met through a local message board for musicians. And we started a band called Severance. And we toured all over the Midwest, Indiana, like, you know, Indiana, like northern Indiana. My dad died in 2004. And so the banks came in and decided that they were going to shut it all down. And they actually advised us to, you need to squirrel away as much money as you can as cash. Because at the end of the season, we're shutting the doors. And my mom was like, okay. And so we pulled enough money out to buy her a single wide trailer. We bought me a truck. We bought her a car because everything that we had was owned by the company. I didn't want to landscape anymore. I mean, I tried it for a couple different companies and it just didn't work well. I went from making $18 an hour working for my dad with the company truck and all the stuff. And mind you, I'd been there 20 years. Okay. I started out at $335 an hour. And then when he passed away, I was making $1865 an hour plus company benefits. When he died, I went from making, you know, a all that to making $675 an hour at a truck stop. And my wife and I ended up homeless. We ended up living on my mom's couch in a single wide trailer with us, our three kids, my mom. My kids all slept in a room. My mom slept in her own room and we slept on the couch. We used to use the oven to heat the trailer because it was so freaking cold in the wintertime. Kind of after a while, you know, it's 2005, 2000, end of 2005, first part of 2006, I look at my wife and I was like, you know, I can't do this anymore. Like, I only know three things, you know, landscaping, music, and the military. And when it comes to landscaping, I don't want to do it. I don't want to cut grass for people anymore. When it comes to music, it's just not paying the bills. It's just not happening. Um, and I said, the military is really the only other thing I know. And my wife was like, okay, well, let's do it. And I mean, I was at Walmart the day before. And I was getting some coffee creamer with my last couple bucks. And uh, I ran into an Army recruiter who was like, you know, hey, man, you ever thought about joining the military? And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm a nine-year veteran, man. I'm, I don't know if that's really my calling anymore. And I got home, and, and I really believed that God laid it on my heart that, you know, this is where I want you. And so went through all the steps, joined back up. And in April of 2006, I was on a plane to Fort Sill, Oklahoma to in process where I spent one week at Fort Sill and then I spent a month at White Sands, New Mexico and Santa Fe, New Mexico doing reintegration training. It's where they take National Guard, reservists and people who had been out for more than 10 years and reacclimate you to military life for prior service people instead of going back through basic training. This is like a four week abridged basic is what it was. And so we did that. We did four weeks at New, at, at New Mexico and then I got orders to, I was on pinpoint orders to uh, Fort Stewart, Georgia, the 3rd Infantry Division, where I ended up doing eight years consecutive. I got there, I was assigned to 2-6 BSB with 2nd Brigade, 3rd Infantry Division. I was a medic with Charlie Company. And then after a very short period of time, 
Um, and by short period of time, I was there 11 months before I was on a plane to Iraq. But in about five months, I was assigned to top flight security platoon from 2-6 BSB. And BSB stands for Brigade Support Battalion. Um, so we were the battalion that supported all of the logistical needs of the brigade. So when brigade... You know, the other battalions in the brigade needed medical support or they needed logistical support or they needed mechanical support. That was our battalion's job. We fulfilled all of that. And I was a medic with the medical company. And so we got moved over to the security platoon. Now, now, mind you, this security platoon, is, is it's kind of a makeshift ragtag bunch of guys and gals. And I mean, we had men and women um, and we were a combat platoon our job was to provide security and, and security patrols for our battalion because we didn't want to rely on you know the infantry guys or the engineers or the mps and things like that we just we didn't want to be a burden apparently and we wanted to do it in-house and do it ourselves and so that's what we did you know we had mechanics cooks fuelers um supply guys and gals all doing all the jobs. They were gunners. They were drivers. They were TCs. They were combat patrollers. Our job was to patrol, provide security for logistic, you know, movements to move like supplies from FOB to FOB. Um, FOB, for those you don't know, is forward operating base. And our job was to to secure those convoys, those tactical convoys. We called them clips, combat logistic patrol. Um, and our job was to provide security for them. Well, while we when we got to Kuwait. Everything was cool. We were moving up, and then it looked like, hey, guess what? We're going to take one of the squads from our platoon, and they're going to go do an EOD escort mission. So you still be doing security, but you're doing it for an EOD team. So EOD is Explosive Ordnance Disposal, um, and their job is to, when troops on the ground find an IED, which is an improvised explosive device, or they find um, EFPs, which are electrically formed, explosively formed projectiles. Um, their job is to go out and detonate them in, on site so they don't hurt anybody. Like when we find them, we, we cordon off the area, we provide a security area for it, and then the EOD sends out the robot or whatever, and they blow up these things so that they don't hurt American troops or local civilians. Our job, we, you know, we had, well, not our job, but we had the opportunity to train up and audition basically to be the security squad for this EOD team which was a, a Navy EOD team. We auditioned, they liked us out of all the three the three or four different teams that auditioned and our squad was selected and I was the medic for that squad and so we left Fob Kalsu and we went up to Fob Falcon and we were assigned to the 4th Brigade 25th Infantry Division Airborne. It's an airborne brigade within the 25th Infantry Light division we did eod escort for i want to say four months and that's where i earned my combat medic badge it's where i saw my first combat it's where i treated my first patient it's where i you know all those things and so one of the things i'm going to share with you today is going to be my first combat experience because it happened while we were on this eod escort team and so what happened was we we were woke up we were awake awakened that morning to a call they were like, hey, we've got EOD needs to roll. And when, when we would get a call that said we're rolling out, we had 10 minutes to be in our trucks, ready to go, full battle rattle, out the door, you know, heading out. And so we got over there to the battalion, to the company area. You know, everything was, we're doing our pre-mission check. Squad leader goes inside um, with the EOD guys and they get the mission brief. And so it's this route that we'd already been on three times, okay? We've already done three missions out the gate for EOD, and we get this call that, hey, we need you to come out. We've already had two vehicles downed, and we think there's another IED on the road. 
And so we get out there with EOD, and these vehicles are just decimated. Like, there's the cabs are left. These are up-armored M- uh, M1151s, and they're just decimated. Their motors are gone. The wheels are gone. The frame outside of the cabs are gone. And, you know, through the grace of God, these guys were okay. Um, there was some smoke inhalation, but no one was killed. And so we get out there, and we pull up on the side of the road, and EOD, is. they get out. We're waiting around. You know, an EOD comes up and says, all right, here's what I want. We want everybody off of the roads. This road is now hot. We want everybody off, and we're going to do a full sweep with our robot and with some other things um, and do the and do the thing, right? And so we're like, okay, so you do the thing. So we pull off. Another vehicle pulls in behind where we were just sitting. EOD comes up. And this is We'd been there off the road for a good 10, 15 minutes, and EOD guy goes up, or not EOD guys, uh, one of the escort guys goes up and says, hey, you got to get this off the road. We want nothing on this. It's a one-lane dirt dirt lane okay in the middle of like a village in iraq and so they're like oh okay and so the guy cocks the wheel to get off the road and by cocking the wheel it hit the trigger on the id and it detonated um and it blew the the guy on the outside of the vehicle it blew him off the road into a field and then it blew the driver out of the door underneath the vehicle where the vehicle landed on his back bulletproof plate and his back bulletproof plate was actually supporting the weight of the humvee at this point but we didn't know that and so I'm over actually with a friend of mine, uh, Sergeant Dunbar, and I'm having a cigarette because at the time I was a smoker, and I get this, you know, doc, medic. And so I take off running, and I find this guy laying in the middle of this field. He's on his back, like trying to stand up like a turtle. And, you know, I grab him, I'm like, are you okay? He's like, yeah, I can't hear anything. And I help him stand up, and I go, you go over there. You know, I point to my vehicle where my buddy Dunbar was at. I go, you go there and go sit down. I'm like, Dunbar, get him. And then I hear medic again. And I run up to the road, and there's this vehicle where the front wheel is gone, the door's blown open, and there's this soldier underneath the vehicle. I think I had a what I call it a combat froze, um, where it's like I literally stopped, I saw, and when I stopped and saw, like time froze, and I saw everything. I saw his leg injuries. I saw the, his face. I thought he was an African American gentleman or soldier. And I freaked out for like a split second. I freaked out, and then I was like, okay, I'm on it. And I reached in my pocket. I grabbed a tourniquet and I jumped down onto the ground right beside him and I started putting tourniquets on. Well, I had this guy that was behind the back of the vehicle. I didn't know at the time who it was, but he was an E7 uh, with that unit. And he starts yelling at me about, like, you need to get him out of here. All I could see was like the legs were blown where it's like the skin's holding on from the knee down. Like both of his tib fibs were shattered and they were wide open and, I, and there was just skin holding it on. And so I'm like, okay. And I go, he goes, you need to get him out of here. And I, I, without looking up, I kind of did the knife hand and I point at him and I go, you need to mind your effing business and pull security. And then, so I start putting this tourniquet on and I realize that he's got this big gash in his upper thigh on his left leg. And so I ran the tourniquet as high up as I could get it and got it on. Um, and then I put the tourniquet on the other knee, uh, the other leg. And then from that point, I grabbed his legs and my buddy Van, we grabbed him by the shoulders and we swept him out of this hole that was under the Humvee. And I had my foot up inside the Humvee and one, my right foot was on the ground, left foot was inside the vehicle. And I got a hold of his pant legs and we sweep him out from underneath. And when we did, the vehicle sunk down into the hole. And that's when I realized that, oh crap, this vehicle had been sitting, you know, on this guy's, his IOTV. And we put him on the tourniquet or the, the litter and we get him off the road into this little, this little dirt path over into this field. 
and we start providing, I start providing first aid at that point. Like I'm putting an IV in, I'm cutting his shirt off. And when I cut his shirt off, this is when I realized, oh crap, this is a white guy. Oh man, we got airway compromise, you know? And I put, you know, I get tourniquets tightened up. I get an IV in both arms. One of the combat lifesavers, as I'm putting the tourniquets in, says, should I give him something for the pain? And I was like, do you have morphine? And he was like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, give him a dose. And so we hit him up with morphine. Then I grabbed a piece of tape. I slapped it across his chest. You know, I start writing on the piece of tape. Now it's a three inch wide by probably six inch long piece of tape and I put it across his chest and I start writing down the other uh, different things that I'm doing the intervention documenting it for the next medic in the, in the chain of custody right and so we get a medic we get a medevac called in and medevac comes in I, you know I've got tourniquets on him I got his hand is bandaged up we got the stumps are bandaged up we've got a dose of morphine I got a, a IV of lactated ringers going I got a IV of head of starch going helicopter lands and we get him up you know to the, to the flight medic, I get up to the flight medic, and I'm like, this is what I've got. I've got an American soldier, bilateral amputation of both legs. i got a high amputation on the left and a low amputation on the right. We've had two doses of morphine. We've got one bag of head of starch, one bag of lactated ringers, and he's stable and ready for transport. And he's like, all right, let's go. And we get him on the bird, and they get him out of here. Now, mind you, this is the crazy part. He gets on the bird. He leaves. I walk over to the vehicle where I started at, which was my vehicle, and I sit down, I grab a cigarette, I start to smoke it, and I have no understanding of why I'm exhausted because I don't know anything that just happened. Like, my mind was completely blank. I don't remember treating him. I don't remember seeing him. I don't remember any of it. For the next three days, these memories start creeping in of this is what I just did. I knew that something happened, but I didn't know what it was. And so here I am, I'm like figuring this out, like over the next three or four days, what I had just done and it freaked me out. And then my, my battalion commander comes up with our Sergeant Major and, you know, I'm awarded my combat medic badge and an ARCOM and, and our whole squad was given the combat action badge because immediately after where my memory started, but immediately after the medevac taking off me sitting down and lighting a cigarette, we take small arms fire and it was nuts. And so, that was my first combat engagement. And we'll talk more and more about some of the things I went through in combat in later podcasts. But uh, that's really what started kind of my PTSD journey. And I'm going to give you a little disclaimer on PTSD. Is I know that there's a big movement in the veteran and in the civilian communities to remove the D or to give it less of a focus on the D for disorder, right? Because post PTSD stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm going to be straight with you. I don't care what you call it. I don't care if you call it PTSD. I don't care if you call it PTSI. I don't care when you're writing it if you give it PTS and then lowercase d or if it's PTS parenthesis d parenthesis. I don't care because the truth of the matter and the fact of it is that it all means the same thing, right? You went through a traumatic experience and it has inevitably changed how you process and foresee the world and it changes how you navigate your life, right? And so regardless of what you want to call it, that's what it is, okay? For sake of argument, I still call it PTSD. So that's what that is. But uh, what happened with this is I ended up getting medically retired from the Army in 2014. Now, prior to this, I had done a second deployment with the Army Band because I had auditioned for and become a member of the 3rd Infantry Division Band. And again, that'll we'll talk about that stuff in later podcasts. I'm giving you the short version of all this. So what ended up happening is I went to my very last therapy that I ever decided I was going to go to with my social worker um, who was doing my therapy appointments at the behavioral health clinic on post. And I looked at her and I was like, you know, I said, I'm starting to get a little fed up because I come in here every week and I kind of pour my heart out to you. And I tell you all of these things that I can't, I, I can't even tell my wife because I can't stand to think about the look I'm going to get when I tell her about some of the things that I went through in combat. Um, and I go, well, I don't know what to do. Like, help me. What am I supposed to do? And she looked me straight in the face 
and with a just a straight expression said, I don't know. Get a dog. Start a garden. And I got up. I cussed her out. I flipped my chair. I stormed out of the building. I go home and I tell my wife, I go, you know, hey, uh, my therapist said get a dog. And my wife goes, you're not getting a dog, you know. And so that kind of went over like a fart in church. But um, <laughs> I was just like, well, I don't know what to do then. She goes, what else did your therapist tell you? She said, start a garden. And my wife was like, you know what? Let's go. And we went to Lowe's that night in our minivan and we bought lumber and we bought dirt and we bought seeds and I bought hand tools and we came home and at eight o'clock at night, I'm in my backyard on post at Fort Stewart in Amber Woods. For those of you who are familiar with uh, Fort Stewart and I'm building a four foot by four foot raised bed garden. My wife's holding two flashlights and I'm putting it together by myself. That became this like this journey of self-therapy where I started looking at what are different things that I can do for myself that won't allow me to avoid what I'm thinking about, but give me enough of a physical distraction that my mind can work unimpeded. And so what I and, and I kind of I've kind of coined a term of their distraction-based therapies. And so this kind of became the beginning of a warrior's garden I was online talking to a mutual friend or to a friend of mine named Brett Manning who lives out of Nashville Tennessee we were talking he had made a post about trauma which he didn't really do that often but I, I saw it and I kind of just felt like I had to, to comment on it and my buddy or wasn't then but he became my buddy but this guy Robbie Grayson chimes in and he goes you know hey I'd really like to talk to you about what you just your comment and what you were saying and so I called Brett and I was like hey man um this guy just reached out to me like is he legit and Brett was like, y'all, dude, he's amazing. Yeah, go ahead and talk to him, and, and he'll hook you up. Don't worry about it. He's legitimate. He's not in it to swindle you or anything. And I'm like, all right, cool. And so I reached out to Robbie, and we got to talking, and we spent a couple of weeks of just getting to know each other over the phone because he's in Tennessee, and I'm in Fort Stewart, Georgia. You know, we're about seven hours away from each other. And I'm like, okay, man. And then he was like, you know what, man? He goes, I want to do a documentary on you. Because at the time, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the 3rd Infantry Division Band now, it's 2012. My buddy Josh and I were working on writing some music, and I was kind of using that on purpose. I was a little selfish about it, but I was using that time of writing music with Josh to kind of, it was my own personal therapy, and that's what I was really put leaning into as therapy for me was the music. I was already gardening, and I was fish, doing my wife and I were doing fishing trips, and I was getting deeper in my walk with God and all of those things, but this really became a moment where... I was relying on the music as a way to release what I was happening, what was happening to me. So Robbie's like, let's let's connect with some people. I want to do a documentary on you about how you're using music as a way to self-treat for trauma, for PTSD. And I'm like, all right, man. And so we put in an actual official official request to uh, to PAO, um, which is Public Affairs Office of the Army. And about six months, we waited and we were planning and prepping. And Josh and I wrote a couple of songs. We were scheduling a studio time because they were going to fly down from Nashville, Tennessee to Savannah, Georgia. We were going to meet them in Savannah. They were going to film a bunch of stuff like us writing, us singing, us rehearsing. They were going to do interviews with Josh and myself and with the people at the studio. And then we were going to record us actually recording professionally these songs that we were writing. Two weeks out, I get a phone call at my company area. Um, and my commander says, hey, Sergeant Gaskin, I need you to run up to building one because there's a colonel at PAO that wants to talk to you. And I was like, oh, crap. And so for those of you familiar with the military, like you don't want to go to building one. That's where the general works. And usually if you're going up there, someone's in trouble. Not really, but that's how we feel about it. And so I jumped in my minivan. I drove to building one. And this full bird colonel is just like, you know, dude, 
Sergeant Gaskin? And I was like, yes, sir, what's up? He's like, man, I am super excited for you. This is amazing. And he was just like this amazingly supportive. Like, he couldn't wait for this to happen. And we're talking for about 10, 15 minutes, and he's just telling me how amazing this opportunity is and how great it is. And then he goes, I'm really sorry, though. We, we can't let you be a part of this. And I go, wait, what, sir? He's like, we can't let you be a part of this documentary because with you being in a med board, what's going on is that you are not allowed or able to talk to the press. You're not allowed to go on record. You're not allowed to do anything where um, it's documented, basically. So nothing on video, nothing on audio, any of that stuff. And I'm like, well, crap, what do I do now? Like, they're, I got to go, sir. Like, they're planning on coming down here in two weeks. And he's like, yeah, yeah, go, go. And so I go call Robbie and I'm like, hey, dude, like we got to stop this. We got to hold it now because this just happened. You know, we were both disappointed and just not real happy about it. But then that's when a couple days later, Robbie calls me and he goes, hey, man, I got to I want to talk to you about something. And I'm like, yeah, what's up? He literally was like, you should write a book about all the different things you're doing for your PTSD. And I was like, dude, I am a high school dropout. I have a GED. I am not a sergeant major. I am not a general. No one wants to read my book. And he was like, dude, just trust me. You're doing so many different things. Just write the book. And so I was like, all right, whatever. And so I wrote an outline just for kind of kicks and giggles, right? And I'm just sitting there and I write this outline and I go, well, that's actually a pretty good idea here. And then I rearranged the outline and moved things around. And then the outline became chapter titles. And then the next thing you know, I'm filling in underneath these chapter titles. Now, mind you, 2013, there's no research at this point that I can find. Now, I didn't have access to, like, you know, a school database or school library, but I'm, everything I can Google, I can't find anything that shows any kind of support for nutrition and how it affects mental health or cognitive abilities um, for gardening. There's no horticultural anything about how it affects PTSD or trauma, things like that. And so when my book was published, A Warrior's Garden was published in 2013, it really was the first of its kind that showed that there's all these other things that we've been ignoring. From there, I wrote the book and we named it A Warrior's Garden. Um, and the book is really more, it's not, don't read the title and think that, oh, it's going to be a great book about gardening because I hear that all the time. It's not, there's one chapter out of 11 chapters that are about gardening. Everything else is about music, faith. It's about family time. It's about fishing trips. It's about personality assessments and knowing yourself. It's about your hidden heroes, which are your spouse and support teams. There's so many different things in that book other than gardening that is not just about gardening. Um, and so what A Warrior's Garden is really, really about is about finding your self-therapeutic path. It's about finding your own way to self-treat in between visits with your therapist, in between visits with a psychologist, in between visits with you know these mental health professionals. This is the thing that you do in between, all right, that you do for yourself. Because you can go to the therapy all day, you can go take your medication, and then you go home, you sit on the couch, and nothing happens because you're just waiting for the next visit. This is the proactive approach to healing that you do on your own. That's what A Warrior's Garden is about. It's about getting in the soil. And it's about growing within yourself. Okay, So the garden, why, yes, it's actually about a garden, but it's also a metaphor about growing, healing within you. That's what A Warrior's Garden is about. A Warrior's Garden is about finding that self-therapeutic journey, about finding your own path to healing where you know, you're able to do things that improve your self-stability and what it's becoming is it's becoming this all-encompassing program we've created a workbook this is the funny thing i had a doctor from walter reed reach out to me in 2000 and 
15 and was asking me about if I had a program where I could come teach it at Walter Reed. Um, I'm not going to use his name just because I'm not going to, I'm not that guy. So I designed the workbook and everything to go along with it because I was going to go out there. I was going to teach a two day workshop and the workshop was going to be about how to apply my book to your individual life and day one. And then on day two, it was going to be about how to build these gardens and set them up and create a actually community garden where all the people, the veterans, the first responders and gold star family people could come together and garden either, either isolated in a garden or with other people, but it, it gave you a place to do it. And I broke it down. You know, I had it literally broken down to the dime of what it would cost to where I was literally making almost no profit but all my costs were covered right and when i say literally almost no profit i'm talking i think i was going to pocket two hundred dollars for the two days after the book sales and after the you know travel expenses and meals and things like that i was going to make about 200 bucks um and i never heard back i never heard back i never heard back and two years three years later I talked to some people that had just left Walter Reed and they were like, oh dude, you should go out there and check out their garden program they have. They have this area of gardens that are like four foot by four foot raised beds and there's just rows of them. And what I found out was they had hired a local nonprofit to take my idea and run with it. So, I mean, I'm not bitter about it. I'm glad that somebody's getting some healing from it, but it's like people are seeing the value of what a warrior's garden offers and they're, they're going with it. They're cloning it. They're doing their own things. And that's great. People are getting healing and that's what I care about, but it's really become more than just a self-therapeutic journey. Now, what it's really become is like it spawned war fighter gardens, which is the nonprofit that we started, which where we do is we build therapy gardens for veterans, first responders and gold star family members um, to be used as therapy gardens at their home. And what we do is I sit down with the family or the veteran or whoever's getting the garden and we design it together the shape, the dimensions, the heights, all of that, when, where it's going to go on their property. And then we get with locals, you know, like the Home Depots, the Lowe's stores, all these places. And we go, hey, would you be willing to support this? And all of them have been really good about, yeah, we can give you up to this dollar amount and they help out quite a bit. And then we do fundraisers to cover the rest. And then we build it with them on site. And then what we do also with the nonprofit is we offer the ability for veterans, first responders, and Gold Star family members to come to a workshop completely for free. Um, they get a copy of the book, copy of the workbook. They get a day of sitting down and learning positive self-coping mechanisms, how to use alternate therapies, and all the different ones that are out there with a little bit of description and ideas of all of them. And on the second day, we either build each and every person a garden to take with them, and it's just generic four-foot or five-foot by five-foot gardens. Or we build, if, if the location where we're doing it is available, we build a community garden center where they can come back and use for free. And that's what it's become. It's become this movement of self-therapy and it's become this movement of growth beyond the garden. And this podcast, so where this podcast is going to go, the desire for my desire for this podcast is that I'm going to expose you and everybody who's listening to a very specific trend of therapy. And it's going to be, I'm going to start it with this generic short list it's not an exhaustive list but this is the list that's on the top of my head pretty much regularly is garden therapy music therapy tai chi yoga art therapy play therapy horticultural therapy whatever else falls to mind equestrian therapy things like that and so the goal is to expose you to all of these different types of therapies to bring in success stories of people that have used things like equestrian therapy or hiking or fishing trips or outdoor therapies or you know, music therapy or art therapy, um, and to bring these people in and for you to hear their success story and what it did for their lives and their marriages and their relationships and all of that. 
um, bring in like some experts on personality typing and show why it's important to understand how you operate either through trait marker assessment or through an Enneagram or through Myers-Briggs, which I'm not huge on Myers-Briggs, but I mean, I see validity in it. Really, just like I said, to expose you to it, to show you the benefits of it, and then to hopefully plant the seeds of hope in you that you're willing to go out and try some of these options that are out there and they're available. That's where we're at. That's where we're going. That's what this is all about. It's about finding the self-therapeutic approaches. It's about. It's really my my one of my key phrases is about get your ass off the couch and get moving. Okay, and and, and, and you know we use the phrase in the military, Goya, get off your ass. And that's really what I'm hoping to do is to inspire people to get off the couch and to get out and get moving and get active in their recovery and their healing. So that's the plan. That's the goal. That's what a warrior's garden is. And that's what a warrior's garden's about. And so, again, I want to say thank you to Scars and Stripes Coffee for providing business opportunities for veterans for free. Um, they don't have to pay to get into it. I want to thank them for their support of this podcast um, and all they're doing. And so thank you for listening. Make sure you check out our website at www.awarriorsgarden.com and check out our Facebook pages. We have several of them. We have A Warriors Garden on Facebook. We have Trauma Focused Life Coaching on Facebook. We have Find Your Eden, which is our workshops on Facebook. Uh, Honor 22 Farms, which is our farm slash homestead on Facebook. Warriors Garden Guided Self Therapy for PTSD, and it's a group on Facebook. Um, it's all about trauma and trauma recovery. But one of the other things that I want to make sure that we impress upon all of you who are listening is like this podcast is not about trauma. It's not about PTSD. It's about PTG. It's about changing our perception and our scope of how we look at things. Because what I want you to do is I want you to stop looking at the trauma that you went through. And I want you to start looking at how you're growing out of it. Okay? Because I don't want you focused on the trauma. I want you focused on the healing. Because if all you focus on is the trauma, that's where you're going to stay. And you're going to be stuck in it. And we don't want that. So I want you focused on the growth. All right? So thanks again for listening. This is Malachi Gaskin. You've been listening to the A Warrior's Garden Podcast. those I lost, all of those here in the garden.